BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Pushkin. Hey listeners, it's Khalil and Ben. We'll be back with a new episode next week. But today we want to share a story from another Pushkin podcast called The Last Archive. The show tells stories all about the history of truth in America. <laughs> and the newest season is hosted by Ben Nadav Haffrey. Man, that is right, Khalil. This episode starts with Ella Fitzgerald, the famous jazz singer. You and I talked about her earlier in the season, her, her friendship with Marilyn Monroe. But in the 1930s, when Ella is a girl, she was sent to a woman's reformatory in upstate New York. At the reformatory, or what's really a kind of prison, a social scientist named J.L. Moreno showed up. He studied the relationships between the girls and women there to prove his theory of social networks. That theory of social networks, it was revolutionary at that time. The way people are connected through friendships and how this affects how they behave had never really been studied Mm. in this way before. Yes, but he missed something happening at the same time at this reformatory. Something to do with race and segregation. Come on, you knew he was going to miss that. (laughs) This episode is amazing. We hope you enjoy it. The Last Archive, A History of Truth. Ella Fitzgerald never much liked doing interviews, which was too bad because she did them all the time. Here's one she did in Dallas in the 1980s. 
Ella, welcome back to Dallas. How marvelous to see oh, you. Oh, thank you, and it's a pleasure to be back here again. From the moment she'd become famous in the 1930s, everybody loved her. And from then, right on through to this interview in the 1980s, people wanted to tell her that over and over and over again. You know, Ella, you really are. You're one of the national treasures. Do you realize that? I, I just realized that a lot of people love me, and I think that's the most important thing. One of the stories, the story really, that Fitzgerald always got asked to tell was the story of how she got famous. The amateur hour at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, when she was supposed to dance, but got nervous and started to sing instead. It was the moment everyone realized she had an incredible voice. And it's a good story, so she's about to tell it again. But listen closely to what happens when she does. Ella, as you look back on your life, here was a child from an orphanage, and now... No. No? Somebody wrote that up. Where did that get come from? I had, well, that was a publicity thing a long time ago, but I have family, and I had family then. But my mother had died. And uh, I guess that's why they used that line that I, I was an orphan, but I had family. At, uh, what, at what age were you when your mother died? I was 15, about 15, because uh, you know, from there we went to the amateur contest. That line about the orphanage, it's not strictly true, but it's not far off either. Because Fitzgerald's not mentioning something else that happened right around the same time as that amateur night. A missing chapter in her story that must have been one of the hardest, most formative times of her life. A chapter that has a lot to do with that question about the orphanage. Welcome to season four of The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know and why it seems like we don't know anything at all anymore. I'm Ben Natafafri. This episode is not about Ella Fitzgerald, or not only about Ella Fitzgerald, but it is about the place where she spent that missing time. Because in Fitzgerald's omission lies an experiment, a social science study that I believe she was a data point in, one of the most important overlooked experiments of the 20th century. These days, we're all used to thinking of ourselves as part of social networks, chains of influence linking us all together. This episode is about where those ideas came from. We'll come back to Fitzgerald, I promise. But first, I want you to meet the experimenter. In the 19-teens, an ocean away in Austria, there was a young and rather mysterious medical student named Jacob Levy Moreno. I, I was born on a uh, on boat, the Black Sea, and uh, uh, I'd be traveling from one part of the world to the other to find myself. Moreno was hard to miss. He'd stride around campus in a green peasant's cloak, hatless, with a long flowing beard. When he was a baby, or so the story goes, a woman on the street pointed at him and said, the day will come when this boy will become a very great man. People will come from all over the world to see him. And so, Jacob Levy Moreno was always invested in his own sense of destiny. In medical school, he worked on the side as a tutor for young children. And this is where the seed of his big experiment was planted, the one that intersected with Ella Fitzgerald. The more he interacted with kids, the more interested he got in their fantasies. He'd walk through the public park 
and sit on a low hanging branch of a big tree and tell the kids fairy tales, and then watch them play together. What interested Moreno about children was how easily they could take on new identities, play pretend, make up stories, believe in the unreal. That spontaneity revealed who they really were, but it also allowed them to recreate themselves together in a group. A spontaneous game of make-believe is a kind of magic. How does everyone agree on a new reality together instinctively? Kids do it effortlessly. And he wanted to give that kind of freedom to everybody. So he watched the kids play, told his stories, and started a children's theater to think about groups and spontaneity. But this was in the lead-up to the First World War. And when it came, the make-believe came grinding to a halt. Moreno went to work at a refugee camp. And I was an officer of health in a camp near Vienna. They uh, were taken away and brought into this camp, about 10,000 Italians, all peasants, all Catholic. And there I, uh, I saw the community developing from scratch. This fascinated Moreno. Watching these groups form was like trying to figure out how those kids in the park created small communities. Except... In the camp, there was no spontaneity and joy. There was only pain. Immediately I began to see attractions and repulsions and indifferences and mm-hmm. jealousies and hate, which hindered the process of integration. As Moreno saw it, the problem was the camp administration didn't have a way of thinking of people as both individuals and members of a group at the same time. Social scientists often considered groups as a mass. Think averages, poles, big static numbers. But... Moreno knew that the truth about these people lay in their relationships as individuals within groups. The people in the camp weren't just generically in the camp. They were specific individuals in specific housing near specific other people. He wanted to figure out a way to trace that influence, a full scientific picture of social reality. He later claimed to have brought his ideas to the government administrators, but they shot him down. It is that it is impractical, I was, uh, and I was greatly disillusioned. And so the result was that I, I uh, began then to study small groups. That's how Moreno got through those hard years of war, working in the camps and using his free time to work on his ideas about groups. When the war was over and Moreno had finished his studies and gotten his medical degree, he wanted to go out into the world and explore his ideas about community as a practicing physician. Problem was... These were the years of Freud and the science of the self. You can imagine that classic scene, lying on the couch in a psychoanalyst's office. Your Freudian psychoanalyst asking you about your childhood, your relationship with your mother, asking you about you in particular. The function of that couch in the office was to shut the rest of the world away. To them, the group was a separate thing that had almost nothing to do with the individual. And everyone was obsessed with the individual. Everyone except Moreno. It really annoyed him. It was as if to this incredibly active, dramatic man, the greatest sin was to lie down on a couch alone and think about your problems. He used to bring it up all the time, in speeches to big groups of people. There's still people who go on the couch for six, eight years, uh, spending $20,000 and so forth, and then they come to us. But Moreno had bigger challenges than the fact that nobody was interested in his research. Violence and persecution of Jews was on the rise, and like so many other Jewish intellectuals, Moreno fled Europe, sailing for New York in 1925. But New York wasn't the most welcoming place either. 
this was just after the Congress had passed uh, legislation greatly limiting immigration from Eastern Europe. Jonathan Moreno is a bioethicist and historian at the University of Pennsylvania. Also, J.L. Moreno's son. And it was especially aimed at Jews and Italians. You know, it was a, it was a really a very clear effort to uh, to keep the the white American race as pure as possible by keeping the Jews and Italians out. But Moreno slipped through. He lived in a hotel on the cheap on the Upper West Side and tried to figure out what to do. It was hard, but after a couple of years, he began to practice a little as a physician again. He had a small group of acolytes, and one of them married him for a time so he could get citizenship. By this point, he'd started an improv theater at Carnegie Hall as part of a long-running goal he had of reforming the theater. But he was probably also thinking through his ideas about how groups worked as he watched the cast perform different kinds of scenes. How spontaneous were they? How quickly did they take on new roles? A hallmark of his philosophy was the idea that acting things out, taking on new roles, could help people work out their problems, just on the stage, not on a couch. Through the theater, he'd made contact with a psychology graduate student named Helen Hall Jennings, who was as interested in studying groups as he was. Together, they began to work out a method of graphing the relationships between people, seeing them as individuals and members in a group at the same time. But to get enough data to test it out, they needed a big experiment, bigger than an improv theater company. He gets his big break when he goes to the American Psychiatric Association meetings in Toronto in 1931, where for some reason, uh, another little immigrant named Abe Brill uh, asks my father to comment on his paper about a psychoanalysis of Lincoln. Brill was the president of the American Psychiatric Association. He was a dyed-in-the-wool Freudian. And in a paper called Abraham Lincoln as Humorist, he tore the president apart. He said Lincoln's jokes were so morbid and sexual, they revealed he was a schizoid syntonic personality, whatever that means. For instance, when Lincoln's friend worried that Lincoln would be assassinated, Lincoln said, if they kill me, I can't die another death. As Brill explained to the press, a normal person ought to have said, very well, I will be very careful. This was hot stuff. And for some reason, he asked Moreno to respond. And now my dad is really trying to integrate himself successfully with American culture, which you have to do, right, as an, as an immigrant. Uh, and so he, he's a great fan of Lincoln. Of course he would be. Moreno decided to psychoanalyze Brill in return, in front of everybody, to stand up for Lincoln, to humiliate Brill, and to show everyone in the process how ridiculous psychoanalysis was. So he actually turned the tables on Brill. Why would Brill, the little five-foot Brill, need to psychoanalyze to take down the great Abraham Lincoln, the six-foot, what, four, six-foot-five Abraham Lincoln, right? Well, Brill is furious, right? Moreno had put his stake in the ground, and he was the talk of the conference. His reputation was growing. All of a sudden, he was a person to pay attention to. So when he gave a presentation on his new way of understanding groups, people were very curious to hear what he had to say. One woman in particular was intrigued, Fanny French Morse. She ran a women's reformatory upstate, the New York State Training School for Girls. She had an idea that it might be the perfect place for Moreno to make his biggest study yet. His fate was on the upswing. But meanwhile, a teenage Ella Fitzgerald's was about to move in the opposite direction. Because right around the time of Moreno's big break, 
her mother got in a serious car accident. We'll be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Ella Fitzgerald was born in Virginia in 1917. Her family moved to New York in the early 1920s to Yonkers, a few years before J.L. Moreno immigrated from Austria. As a girl, she loved to dance. She was an excellent student, too, but her real education was making the rounds of the dance halls, picking up new steps. In 1932, though, her life began to fall apart. To fall apart in a way that very soon put her in the path of J.L. Moreno. That was the year Moreno was finally finding his footing. His takedown of Abe Brill, the Lincoln-diagnosing psychoanalyst, had made him a minor celebrity. A lane was opening up for his new ideas about researching groups, which is how he made contact with the progressive reformer Fanny French Morse. She invited him to move out of New York City and up the river to Hudson to become the director of research at the reformatory where she was the superintendent, the New York State Training School for Girls. Moreno headed up to the school. There's a silent film in his archives that was taken a bit later on, so you can see what it was probably like when he arrived. 
The reformatory was set high up on a ridge in Hudson, New York, an old industrial and whaling town. The campus sprawled across 125 acres, dotted with neat brick cottages. Latticework, white trim, blue shutters, clean and tidy. The girls at the training school lived in the cottages, each of which was presided over by a house mother. Moreno would later write that there was a chapel, a hospital, an industrial building, a steam laundry, a store, an administration building, even a farm. It looked well-ordered and open, like a boarding school, tucked away in the quiet Hudson Valley, hours from the city. Except it wasn't a boarding school. A reporter once wrote, In only one respect would a visitor suspect that this was not a junior college of the free world. The girls refer to life as outside. The reformatory is the kind of place that looms in the collective unconscious, like the insane asylum, the woods at the edge of town, the abandoned manor, the island prison. The kind of dark, gothic corner of the mind where stories gather like in a spider's web. I think that's because there's an ambiguity to it, about the degree to which it's a school or a prison. I mean, I hate to call it a school. Nina Bernstein, longtime reporter at Newsday and the New York Times. In the 90s, she began to investigate the history of the New York State Training School for Girls for an amazing book called The Lost Children of Wilder. She's the kind of person who not only goes to the archive, but... Once she's there, she turns every page. The New York State Training School for Girls actually began as a house of refuge for women in 1887. And uh, it was the first, I think it was the first place that women were separately uh, held. And it was seen as a great reform. As I discovered when I looked at the records, this was a place of solitary confinement, very harsh punishments, um, and minute uh, surveillance of behavior. Uh, were they, did they speak in a low voice? Were they uh, too boisterous? Um, did they sit up straight? I mean, you know, that kind of thing. One of the biggest accomplishments of the progressive era was the shift from trying children in adult courts to juvenile ones. People were especially worried about putting kids in adult prisons, or even just leaving them in fast-growing cities. The reformatory was meant to solve for that. But in its first few decades, it kept getting made and remade. Moreno was brought in as part of one of the most dramatic pushes to reform, an effort to understand how the girls functioned together as a group. I bring this up in part because you have then another reformer, Fanny French Morse. Morse had taken over the Hudson Reform School when it had become basically a prison. When she took over, she made a huge pile on the lawn of all the prison uniforms and the straitjackets and the restraining sheets. And then she lit them on fire. That was Fanny Morse, burning it all down to build it again. She'd been born in Maine and widowed young. She'd run reformatories all over the place, and even worked on the national one. She was glamorous, progressive, imposing. At an old job, her coworkers remembered she had a fancy carriage that she never drove herself. She wore small, rounded glasses. And she had false teeth made of solid gold and painted white, and they locked into her jawbone with a small gold key. That's how I imagine Morse. Carriage waiting, metal jaw clenched bonfire glinting off her glasses, and gold key in her pocket. She was a type, the progressive-era reformer. If you were an ambitious woman in those days, 
Running a reform school was one of the few clear pathways to real political power, but it was political power at a cost. There was this idea at the time, you know, of the woman as the guardian of the hearth, the the, the angel of the hearth. And they, the idea was you were going to reprogram these women to be that, and that otherwise they were going to have these uh, offspring who would be criminals and, and, you know, you would essentially be decimating the race. She is a reformer against that eugenics attitude that all these girls are feeble-minded and she introduces art and gardening and so on. There's there, there are these positive aspects, but there are also these very negative aspects from our from our perspective. Morse was on a crusade. She moved into a rundown old colonial half a mile from the school. It had once been a grand house, but more recently had been used as a brothel. She had the girls from the school fix it up, polish the curved mahogany balustrade, restore the old antiques. She said she believed in giving them an aesthetic education, and she held herself up as a model. At Christmas, she'd put a candlelit tree in every room of the first floor and host dinner parties for her charges. In the summer, they'd come for dinner on the porch. She remade the school in her image, too. The guardhouse became a teacher's cottage, and the cottages began to fill up with old antiques that she'd gathered for the girls to fix. She bought a 120-acre farm for them to work. She got rid of the uniforms and let them shop in town with an escort. She was especially proud of her choir, and she showed it off at every opportunity. The press loved her, the revolutionary woman reforming the reformatory, who had remade the school so entirely that girls were supposedly begging to stay. But there were some ugly rumors. A former employee of hers once said, Fanny French Morse went through life making decisions on the basis of what glorified her reputation. She suggested Morse had spent money on cosmetic improvements while her girls went without the essentials. And Morse had another problem, too. From her supposedly perfect utopian reformatory, the girls kept running away. That's why she needed J.L. Moreno. Why the girls ran away was one of the first things her new director of research was meant to study. So now he has, for the first time, a big institution with a completely free hand to exercise his ideas about interpersonal relations and sociometrics. Sociometry was what Moreno called his new science. He assembled a team of research assistants. It seems that he lived at the school, an entirely closed world of about 505 people. Moreno could finally make his map of what he began to think of as a social network. The closed world of the school was perfect because there were clear boundaries. Nobody got in or out without someone knowing about it. The idea that you could walk into a community of hundreds of kids, basically, and staff, uh, and all the caretakers and so forth, and just look around and see these people, that's the visible world, right? But then there's this whole invisible world, sort of like um, when you look at the stars, you you don't see constellations. Uh, you see little points of light. So what, what, you know, you need, you need to be a great astronomer. And so he saw himself doing that. Moreno and his collaborator Jennings were also doing something morally complicated, making a study of a vulnerable population who couldn't consent to participate. It was true of all the girls at the school, poor girls under state control, but it was especially true of the black girls. This white scientists studying black people 
It happened a lot in the Progressive Era in the early 1930s. That same year that Moreno arrived at Hudson, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment began, where hundreds of black men with syphilis were told by the government that they were being treated, when actually they were just being studied, to see what happened when syphilis went untreated. Knowledge, but at a cost of injustice that no one should ever have to pay. At Hudson, Moreno and Jennings gave the girls blank forms on which they could rank their preferences for roommates, as well as mark the people they didn't want to live with. Moreno called these attractions and rejections, and they were meant to show who is connected socially to whom. Using the answers, they began to map the cottage communities. Maybe the runaways all lived in cottages with higher rejection scores. On the map, they drew the attractions as red lines and the rejections as black, until the school filled up with all these threads spinning out from hundreds of girls. Reading Moreno's extremely long and extremely dense account of this work is like taping your eyes open and scanning through a thousand lines of computer code. Except, then these heartbreaking stories cut through all the scientific lingo. GE I want in my cottage because I feel towards her like she was my little sister. I never had any, and I like to take care of her. Mostly, she's just a lonesome little child you just have to be fond of. And then they'd write their reasons for rejecting others. It's only because she has a way of edging up to you and standing so close when she talks to you. There's something about her that is repulsive to me. I felt this way about her even before I found out about her having secret meetings most every day with colored girls. She doesn't just go with him herself, but she tries to get new girls to carry her notes, so they'll get interested too. Moreno and Jennings traced those connections and rejections between girls of different races, but even with an eye towards rearranging the community, race was an invisible wall they wouldn't cross. If a white girl wanted to live with a black girl, that was out of the question, because there was something else that no one mentioned in all the breathless news coverage about the reformed reformatory the school was segregated. This was controversial even at the time. Just a few months before Morse met Moreno and asked him up to Hudson, the attorney general of New York had found out that a black girl was denied a spot at Morse's school and issued an opinion about the segregation there, saying that it should not be permitted because of the possibility of abuse. But still, Morse believed firmly that the school should stay segregated. That was galling to Black civil rights leaders. They're seeing Black kids continue to be subject to uh, the horrific treatment um, that is supposed to be at this point reserved only for adults. Jeff Ward is a professor of African and African-American studies at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. I found his work through the Prison Public Memory Project, which is an amazing website devoted to the legacy of the training school. Ward wrote a sweeping history called The Black Child Savers. You know, they're seeing their kids denied the same prospects of self-realization that white kids are seemingly having access to vis-a-vis the rehabilitative ideal. Morse was trying to keep access to that ideal as limited as possible to white girls. That dividing line and everything else was observed in Moreno's study. The researchers watched the girls talking in pairs while doing laundry, studied them as they made rugs together. Moreno and Jennings presented the research as total, which of course it wasn't, couldn't have been. But every observation became a number, and those numbers helped the researchers draw their lines between the girls. Which ones were friends? Which ones were enemies? And how strongly they felt about each other? 
and you could actually put a number on that. You could calculate it, right? So this was even better. One cabin had 45.73 mutual uh, choices, and another another ha- cabin had 89.65 mutual choices. Well, what does that really mean? I don't know. It's surely false precision. But in terms of the history of ideas, that was really a breakthrough. Moreno and Jennings were gathering an unprecedented amount of data, watching the girls interact, and beginning to sort it into maps and charts. And that's when the runaway chain began. In the fall of 1932, two girls named Ruth and Marie ran away from Cottage 12. They were both daughters of Italian immigrants. Ruth had once been forced into prostitution. Marie's mother said she was incorrigible, and so she was sent to Hudson. Moreno and Jennings already knew about them because they ranked high on the list of girls who were isolated in the community. Very few lines ran towards them. On Halloween night of that year, there was a party. A friend of Ruth and Marie's pretended to faint, and while the house mother was distracted, they slipped away. Then, the next night, five girls ran away. Four days after that, another four girls. And then three girls. Fourteen girls ran away over a period of 14 days. Why? Runaways had always been a problem, but only 10 girls had run away in the seven months before. During the same stretch the previous year, only three girls had run away. And it wasn't just that these were the loneliest girls. There were plenty of other isolated points on Moreno and Jennings' maps who hadn't run away. And it wasn't just that these were the people who ran away, because only two of them had ever tried it before. It was a mystery. So Moreno and Jennings went to Psychological Geography Map 3, and they began to trace the lines connecting the runaways. This is why the mapping was important. They said they'd collected 10,000 pages of data, and they needed a way to visualize it all. What they noticed was that, even though Ruth and Marie were lonely kids, there was an important line of friendship that ran from them to the next girls who ran away, and then from those girls to the next, and so on. They discovered attractions between them all, a pathway of influence that ran from Cottage 12 unbroken to Cottage 10. Moreno wrote that it was proof that networks exist. We're accustomed these days to thinking of social networks in terms of epidemiology, right? And I think what he understood was that there was an epidemiology to the, the, the influences of ideas and patterns of ideas in social networks. Uh, so uh, how, how did the girls stimulate each other to be rebels, right? Or to, be, uh, to accept the conditions of the school, which one might well argue they shouldn't have accepted right, given a deeper understanding of what those conditions probably were. It was a powerful piece of social science, arguably the first time the spread of an idea had been traced so closely. Moreno and Jennings used their maps to reorganize the cottages, and the runaway numbers began to drop until, Moreno claimed, they were unprecedentedly low. Morse must have been thrilled. Moreno had seen the unseen. On April 2nd, 1933, Moreno showed those maps in public for the first time at a medical conference. At the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Manhattan, a hundred miles away from the reformatory, physicians and journalists peered at the webs of 7,000 red and black lines spiraling out from hundreds of little circles, some marked as white girls, some marked as black. 
together comprising, the scientists said, the entire psychology of the Hudson Reformatory. The next day, the New York Times proclaimed, emotions mapped by new geography. Moreno said that the same kind of invisible structure ran through all of society. He claimed the study proved there were 10 to 15 million isolated people in the country. And he said there were plans now to make a complete psychological map of New York City. That map never happened, or not as he planned it. But the work on the walls of the hotel was a forerunner of social network theory, a field that has fundamentally shaped the way we think about policy, how ideas and culture spread, and the way social media algorithms are built. The the mere mapping of the networks is transformational. The the recognition that there are these elaborate, you know, skines of human interactions, you know, like where these people are interconnected. That's Nicholas Christakis. He directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale, and he's done a number of groundbreaking studies on social networks. When we talked, he pulled out an old copy of a Moreno map. I have to be very delicate here so as not to rip it. It's a sociometric geography of a community, it says. This image, it's a very famous image of uh, these are girls. Every dot is a girl, and the lines between them are friendships, and they're in different dormitories in the little circles. And look, at you can just immediately see that the ties within the dormitories are tighter. That's like a really fundamental insight. That's that's so-called community structure within the within the dormitories. So there's a there's a just a tremendous amount of insight in the book, no matter the man's you know manifest a weirdness. Uh, and uh, and he was weird. There was a tremendous amount of insight, but also as Christakis and I talked about, something missing. Those runaway girls were Moreno's proof that social networks existed. And that was the basis of his new science. But they also proved something else. We know what it was now, in part because, two weeks after that meeting, when Moreno and his crew were back studying at Hudson, a new girl showed up to the New York State Training School. She was entered in the logbook. They wrote the date, April 18th, a number, 3986, and her name, Ella Fitzgerald. And then under a fence, they wrote, ungovernable. We'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 
only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. When Ella Fitzgerald's mom got in that car accident, her family life turned upside down. In a great upcoming book, the historian Judith Tick writes that she survived, but was badly hurt. Her job had been the family's main source of income, and it was the Depression. They were in trouble, so Fitzgerald started taking any work she could find. At some point, she ran numbers, and she'd worked at a brothel, keeping a lookout for cops. Then, one day, the police picked her up for truancy, and brought her before a judge who sentenced her to the training school up in Hudson. They checked her in one week before her birthday. Her whole life, she'd avoid speaking publicly about her time at the reformatory, and it wasn't even public knowledge that she'd been there. Until Nina Bernstein, that investigative reporter from the New York Times, was interviewing someone from the school. And at some point in the interview, he tells me that there had been an effort to bring back as role models for girls, you know, at some time in the history of the institution, there had been this effort to bring role models back. And that the assistant superintendent, Muriel Jenkins, had recounted to him now that Fitzgerald wanted nothing to do with the institution. This was the first Bernstein heard of it. When we talked about it, she got animated, like it was happening all over again. And I'm, of course I go, oh my God. Bernstein began to dig. I went back to the local historian, and she was able to give me uh, several names and numbers of people who had worked at the institution, including this, you know, woman in her late 80s who had taught English, and she had been Ella Fitzgerald's teacher. And she talked about what a great student she was and what a perfectionist she was and her beautiful penmanship. She said, I can even visualize her handwriting. What's interesting to me is I don't think it was the stigma that Fitzgerald was avoiding by refusing to talk about her time at the training school. She spoke in interviews about running numbers and working at the brothel. It wasn't that she'd done something illegal. I'm not sure why she didn't talk about it, but maybe it was just too painful. Because on top of all the other indignities and abuses of life at a segregated reformatory, there was one thing that must have hurt Fitzgerald especially. Morse's all-white choir wouldn't let her sing with them. I interviewed Beulah Crank, who had been a house mother in the 50s and 60s, but who had been a teenager who grew up in Hudson. And she told me, she vividly recalled uh, Ella and some other 
black girls from Hudson being invited to sing at her the local AME church. And um, to some extent, uh, at least, I, I came away with the feeling from Beulah Crank that the church had invited these girls to perform uh, in part because they were excluded from this uh white choir that was a big deal at the time, and uh, that she had never forgotten that that she said uh, that girl sang her heart out. In Moreno's study, the race of the girls is noted on some of the maps. You can see the ties between black and white cottages. He'd written that, though black and white students lived separately, in educational and social activities, they mix freely. But from Fitzgerald's experience, it's clear that that wasn't the case. Moreno and Jennings had either totally missed it, or they'd chosen to ignore it. Based on everything they'd observed, I don't think they could possibly have missed what was really going on. And it wasn't just segregation in the choir. In the basement of those white-trimmed cottages, there were beatings, too. You know, this was a system in which the black girls were in these black cottages were subjected to corporal punishment by men. And, you know, so beaten by men. It turned out that Fitzgerald had been kept in the basement and, in the words of the superintendent Bernstein spoke to, all but tortured. This was part of life at the New York State Training School. Soon after, an investigation of the school revealed the full extent of what girls like Fitzgerald were subject to. There was never enough space for black girls because they were only allowed in two of the many cottages. White girls got to use Moreno's sociometric system to choose their roommates, but not black girls, because there were so few options for where they could live in the first place. Black girls were made to do all the laundry for the white girls, because that's the kind of job Morse thought they could get outside the school. All that is why Bernstein hates to call it a school. The reason it was always a prison. I was 15 about 15, because uh, from there we went to the amateur contest. There's no record of when Ella Fitzgerald left the training school. Based on the vague parole records and the fact that she'd been sentenced to a few years, Bernstein thinks she ran away. And I think so too. But she was at Hudson when Moreno and Jennings were there, the year before they published their study. So I went back to their account, that dense text. And I can't know but I think that I found Ella Fitzgerald in it. On page 110 of Moreno's book, he describes a group of girls working on restoring a piece of furniture. They worked with varnish and sandpaper to strip the old paint, repair it, and paint it again. And in that group, there's a girl named Ella. Each girl was given a two-letter code. Moreno gave Ella the code, G-A. A hundred pages later, there's another graph with 34 red circles for white girls and 23 black ones for black. In the fourth black circle from the top, you can see the letters G-A. Moreno published his book in 1934 with the title, Who Shall Survive? The book was enormously influential, including with the Roosevelt administration. Moreno's science was used in the New Deal and also in the internment camps. It led to an influential journal called Sociometry, in which the principles of social network theory were formulated. They published the paper that tested the six degrees of separation rule. 
Social science legends like John Dewey, George Gallup, and Margaret Mead were on the editorial staff. A History of Social Network Analysis is dedicated to Moreno and says that without him, there would be no field of social network analysis. Moreno had finally founded that field that was all about seeing the group and the individual all at once. But in the process, he missed something crucial about these particular individuals. In that same year, Moreno finally established himself with his Hudson study. Ella Fitzgerald entered a contest at the Apollo Theater. When, when you first started, uh, you had visions of, of not being a singer, you were going to be a dancer. Is right. that right? Right. Tell me about that. Oh, you really want to hear that? Oh, well, yeah. it, it started back in my hometown in Yonkers. And I was what they call the, you know, the greatest little dancer in Yonkers. <laughs> and uh, we used to go down to the Apollo on amateur night, my girlfriends and I. And, you know, like they always tell you, if you want to be an amateur, to sign and drop your name in the box. And being from Yonkers, we never thought anybody would send a postcard to Yonkers. And uh, the three of us, we put our names in. She's on stage in the twilight of her career, telling that story everybody loves again. What nobody knew was, when she was on the stage at the Apollo, she was just out of the training school. And I was the one who was chosen and uh, I made up my, you know, they say, well, if you don't go, you're chicken. Right. So we went, and uh, believe it or not, I was the first amateur that they called. And there were two sisters who were the dancing sisters in the world called the Edward Sisters. And they were starring at the Apollo. And they closed the show at the Apollo. And I, when I saw those ladies dance, I says, no way I'm going out there and try to dance, because they stopped the show. Mm-hmm. I was the first one was called. And when I got out there, somebody hollered up in the audience, what is she going to do? <laughs> Fitzgerald was on stage in front of a theater that fits over a thousand people. She was rail thin, wearing boots and a tattered dress. And my, my mother had a, a record of Miss Connie Boswell, who I think was one of the greatest singers that ever lived. And uh, she used to play uh, Object of My Affection and Judy. And I got so I had, you know, used to sing it. So when the man said, sing something, well, I tried to sing Judy. And I thank Miss Connie Boswell, because then I tried to sing like her, and I sang, if a voice can breathe. Every hope of the spring, that's Judy. And everybody says, oh, that girl can sing. And the people applauded it so much, I sang Object of My Affection. That was the other side of the record. <laughs> and uh, I won first prize. So uh, then that made me feel like, you know, well, I want to try to be a singer. She said that if she hadn't won that contest, she probably wouldn't have tried to become a singer. Fitzgerald started fronting for a band, Chick Webb's Orchestra. Not long after that, she had her first big hit, and then she became one of the most famous singers of all time. But what I kept thinking about is, she didn't write the song she sang. It's her voice people love. And her voice is something so singular, so beautiful, that all she had to do was begin to sing, and everyone in that room at the Apollo fell in love. And then I thought about Fanny French Morse's all-white choir and how they couldn't hear her voice because all they could see was her skin. 
that's what segregation does to a mind. It's a prison. And Ella Fitzgerald escaped. In the summer of 1936, two years after Moreno's study came out, as Fitzgerald was touring the country, a black doctor named Emmy Ross wrote the governor of New York about the conditions for black girls at the New York State Training School. It led to an investigation. Morse tried to fight it. She pressured a black member of her staff to, quote, keep her mouth closed on this. Judges wrote letters to the governor, claiming that integrating the school would start a race war. But still, it went ahead. And in the end, the investigation led to Fanny French Morse stepping down from the school and retiring from public life. And the broader movement surrounding it led to an amendment that prohibited the funding of a place like the training school if it discriminated by race. It was a groundbreaking piece of legislation, and it led to all kinds of other civil rights laws, like a big idea working its way through a network. Decades later, an interviewer asked Fitzgerald what she'd have been if she hadn't become a singer. And she said, a teacher. I love children. I got to put that in. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a flopper with children. We sang 13,000 children in uh, South Carolina. And we did uh, Old MacDonald. And you should hear all of them singing E-I-E-I-O. This is embarrassing to admit, but I started writing this story because I found a bunch of undigitized tapes of Moreno in his archives doing his therapeutic theater thing. And I thought, great, this will be fun and strange. But then I learned about social network theory. And then the prison. And finally, Ella Fitzgerald. And the story rotated on its axis. I felt like I walked into that place with a set of ideas. And I walked out of it with her. I came for the group. And I left with her voice. And I've always felt that if it takes one person to make the other person, we don't do anything by ourselves. I, I think if uh, we try to help each other, I like to feel now that a lot of the young people will say, well, she did it. I can do it. You're a beautiful person. People are beautiful. Thanks, Ellen. Thanks, Ellen. We live our lives in the intersecting webs of social networks that Moreno saw, for better and for worse. But the thrust of all that, why any of it matters, is because it means we owe each other. We're not just individuals. We're not only groups. It's like Fitzgerald said in that interview. We don't do anything ourselves, And it takes one person to make another person. says that love is blind still we're often told seek and ye shall find so I'm going to seek a certain light I've had in mind The Last Archive is written and hosted by me Ben Nadafafri It's produced by me and Lucy Sullivan and edited by Sophie Crane Jake Gorski is our engineer Fact-checking on this episode by Arthur Gompertz. Our foolproof player is Becca A. Lewis. Sound design by Jake Gorski and Lucy Sullivan. 
Our executive producers are Sophie Crane and Jill Lepore. Thanks also to Julia Barton, Pushkin's executive editor. Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonet. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. Special thanks to Judith Tick for sharing an advanced copy of her upcoming book, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald, a biography that overturns many myths about Fitzgerald's life. Thanks also to Becky Cooper, Will Friedwald, Russ Amerijan, Jessica Murphy, and the New York State Archives. For a bibliography, further reading, and a transcript and teaching guide to this episode, head to thelastarchive.com. The Last Archive is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. And please sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm slash newsletter. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ben Nadefafri. Someone to watch Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.